Welcome to the Crisis Communications Podcast, which is brought to you by the Crisis Communications Network Europe. The network is an association of European owner-managed PR agencies with deep crisis communications experience to provide pan-European services to clients where a need arises. On the podcast, the members from the different European countries discuss crisis communications, their experience and some interesting case studies. My name is Greg Canty and I am from Fusion Communications in Ireland. I hope you enjoyed the show. On this episode, Greg Canty of Fusion Communications in Ireland and Hoop Vanier of Van Hudson Communications introduce Robert Mullemeister of PM Risk Crisis Change in Belgium. Robert talks about his career, how the company approaches its crisis communications work, and in particular, the innovative zombie game simulation that they use with clients. Robert also speaks about an interesting case study with some very challenging circumstances. We hope you enjoy the show. A big welcome back to my co-host, Hoop. How are you doing? I'm fine, Greg. Thank you very much. Here uh, We have uh, splendid weather here in the Netherlands at the moment, so um, we're all happy. Well, I think pretty much we got our first decent day today <laughs> after a terrible weekend and pretty much a terrible month. You know, one of those times where you're thrilled for the good weather, but you're cursing that it didn't come a few days earlier. But what can you do? And we have another guest today, and I'm going to give you the honor of introducing him. The guest is uh, Robert Meulemeester from uh, PM in um, Ghent, Belgium. Um, he is one of our... Um, renowned uh, members in the CCE network. It has been some while that uh, that PM entered our network um, and I've tried to, to to find back the moment that uh, that we were so lucky to, to meet PM. I couldn't find it. So Robert, would you please help me a little bit about the first steps of PM in the CCE <laughs> network? To be honest with you, uh, I can also not recall the exact date, but I recall it was somewhere uh, amidst the pandemic, uh, if I'm correct. Um, it was the partners of the company, mainly Stan Peters, who is managing partner, and Hugo Marenissen, who decided to join CCNE. Uh, and I came in the picture a bit later. Robert, tell me about you and your own kind of personal journey, your own personal career. Well, I am so Robert Mullemeester. I'm 28 years old. I live near Bruges in Belgium and I've studied communications management, uh, but I always had a entrepreneurial mindset. So even when I was studying, I had a small company advising uh, small other companies on social media and marketing, digital marketing and such. Uh, I also organized with a couple of friends a series of parties and festivals in the neighborhood. Um, so I was always busy with something else, uh, always doing something else. And next to that, um, I've always been a fan of amusement parks, theme parks, traveling, Formula One, racing uh, and sports in general. But um as of my journey, yeah, for some reason I ended up at PM. I was always the only one in my class who was interested in crisis communications. I had a feeling. <laughs> and also something happened at one of the parties that I organized, which led me to PM because we were suddenly in need of crisis communications. And since then, I've always been around and I stuck. So um, yeah, that marked the start of my journey at PM. Now, you have to tell us and the listeners what happened at the party. 
Well, it was um, a very, very sad story. It was a winter edition of a party we had. And the day after the party was over, we received police reports that somebody was missing. And I immediately felt that something was not right. So we kept an eye on it and provided information to rescue services. And it was for family and friends, especially a hard few days filled with uncertainty. Um, and after that, they, they, they found a the body and yeah, the, the guy drowned after visiting our party. Probably um, we assume he had to pee and he came to the water and he stumbled in. And uh, yeah, that's when he passed away. So then everybody started looking at the organizers of the party where he went to. And yeah, that was a, a moment where our organization was in the center of the spotlight in the country for a couple of days, which was very confronting and painful because I was only 18 or 19 years old at that time. So it was really confronting, but of course, not similar to the pain of the family and the friends, of course. We were so lucky to be invited by PM uh, last spring for a CCNE conference. Only now I can uh, see that that is a logical choice for Robert to be the head of ceremonies there in, uh, in Ghent. Please uh, tell the listeners a bit more about uh, PM, uh, Robert. Yeah, so our company is called PM Risk Crisis Change, uh, based in Ghent in Belgium, and we are specialized in integrated crisis management services, uh, which is a very expensive term. And by that, we mean that we're not focusing on crisis communication as a single discipline, but we're integrating it uh, within a broader picture of operational crisis response and uh, strategic crisis management. And add to that crisis communication, and then you have a triangle, and that's what we mean with integrated crisis management. And um, yeah, we provide services um, on integrated crisis management uh, in all phases of the crisis timeline. Uh, before a crisis, we do exercises, trainings, we write plans, we do drills, whatever you do to prepare yourself for uncertainty. And then during a crisis, we always can get called by clients or people that find us on the internet, like I did with PM uh, back in the day. Uh, and then we jump in and we go help the best way we can, wherever we are needed. And then after a crisis happens, then we are also yeah, more than happy to take a look with the client at what went wrong and how can we do better, but also what went good and what are some lessons to take from this crisis, a period in which most organizations start working very efficiently and what principles can we implement in the daily working of the organization. So am I correct in saying that you specialize 100% on crisis? Uh, yeah, exactly. So within, especially within our training and consultancy business, we are uh, at this moment looking at crisis every day of the week. Um, we also have a research and development uh, part of the organization, that department, so to speak, they do a lot of research on related fields as well. So for example, we're also looking at resilience. We're looking at the impact of stress on crisis teams. So that even goes a bit broader, but we first we want to research that before bringing it into our training and consulting services. And what is the importance of communications in a crisis in all those three phases? Can you um, elaborate a bit more about it? Yeah, so for crisis communication, we have, especially compared to some of our competitors, we have, I think, a quite unique view on crisis communication in the sense that the old school way of thinking about crisis communication is that you do it to save your reputation. 
And that's always what our, what clients initially want. Eh? We want to communicate or we don't want to communicate because of our reputation. But that's a thing that we fundamentally disagree with. For us, when it's crisis, it's not about your reputation. It is about the relationship you have with the people that put their trust in you. And instead of putting yourself in the center, which is typical for reputation management, it's all about us. No, it's not about you. It's about the people that are really affected or involved uh, in the crisis. So, for example, we had uh, in Europe a couple of weeks ago, we had the Ferrero Rocher scandal when Legionella, I think it was, was found in the Kinder Surprise uh, eggs. Well, they initially didn't want to communicate because they feared that there would be a backlash for their reputation. But yeah, of course, the opposite was right. By not communicating, people were having more and more distrust, and it eventually also led to some of their production factories being closed. So we think about crisis communication as something that is not about you, but about the people that are involved. We think about it as something that is very strategic and that can affect your license to operate if not done right. So it's not something about, it's not just putting out a press release. No, it's fundamentally protecting the operations and the continuity of your organization. Also affects the internal communication, of course, because the organization itself should be informed very well. Exactly. And that's um, yeah something that uh, companies often tend to forget. That's perhaps putting it the wrong way. But some organizations are still of the opinion that, okay, we push out the press release and then we'll inform the people. And no, the other way around. Start with your own people and then do the external communications. Okay, Robert, would I be correct in saying so that a lot of your clients would have their own PR agencies? Yeah, I think so. Um, we work for quite a diverse group of clients, uh, big clients and small clients. And especially the big ones, they either they have a very big communications department themselves, but for specific things such as crisis communications, either it is acute, uh, acute advice or trainings, oftentimes they ask help from agency like ours. And even small companies, I recalled during the first Corona lockdown, I live in a small town near Bruges. There was a local barber shop who still invited clients in and then they closed the curtains and they still cut the hair. And, and at some point the police came by and for some reason they found me. So that evening I spent my time posting on Facebook for that local barber shop. <laughs> so that, that was an anomaly. Normally we don't really work for yeah, that small organizations, but the principles still hold up. <laughs> Were people asking you about haircuts and different hairstyles, Robert? Uh, luckily, I didn't have to write a Q and A because it wouldn't have <laughs> it, it. It wouldn't be very successful. <laughs> Would you tell me about your zombie games? Because I believe that's part of your crisis planning process. Um, yeah. So one of the things we do at PM is uh, training and consulting, like I mentioned, and we do all kinds of trainings: classical formations drills, regular exercises involving the police and the firefighters and such. But what we often see is that when you spend all your time preparing a highly realistic scenario, people get sucked into that scenario. Imagine a management team playing a very realistic scenario, for example, a cyber attack. And then all of a sudden in the scenario, because I don't know, you prepared the scenario a month earlier or something, Let's say that in one of the inputs, you use an older software version. Or in the exercise, person X gets the phone call and not person Y. And then all of a sudden, 
the people playing the exercise, they don't think it's realistic anymore. No, 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 this is not a good exercise. This would never happen. We already updated, blah, blah, blah. So of course I can understand the reflex, but at the same time, what we see sometimes is that by doing a too realistic scenario, you never get the chance anymore to train the real basics of crisis management, being a good meeting, getting the right information to the right people, dealing with time constraints, dealing with stressed people. Uh, that all go, goes out of the window oftentimes when you focus too much on the scenario. So therefore we said, let's make an exercise with an exario, a scenario so absurd that nobody can talk about, yeah, this is how we would usually do it just because it's so extraordinary. So that's why we came up with a zombie scenario. And basically it is a game, a game simulation, a crisis exercise masked as a game in which the players have to save the world from zombie attacks. But in doing so, they really use all good principles of crisis management and good crisis communications. And it's fun to do. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it is fun to do. Yeah, we, we spend lots of time uh, refining the, the gaming mechanisms. Uh, it helps that me and my colleague, former colleague Tim van Achten, when we are both gamers as well, so we play a lot of board games. So we really had fun developing it. Uh, and we always love seeing the smiles on people's faces when they play it. I think you played this game, Hoop, didn't you, recently? Yes, well, when we were um, having our CCE uh, network meeting with most of the partners in the CCE, uh, Robert and his, uh, and his mastered the zombie game, especially for us. And that is... Uh, that was fun because just what Robert explained, the fundamentals came up. Uh, having a good meeting with the right sense of information that you would need to solve your problem in the total structure of the main problem. And, and it, it was fun because the management, the board was up the third floor and the third party. And I was in the third, uh, that was the workers. And they were down and they w didn't get right information. So they didn't know what to do. So they became angry on everything. So, so, and that was well. And they played, they, they were the, the good host. Just in a very short time, I can Im imagine, Robert, that if you need more time, if you uh, use more time for the game, it, it will go deeper and deeper. Yeah, just um, today, actually, we uh, played uh, the zombie game with a gas company, gas supplier here in Belgium. And I think we played five game rounds of 20 minutes, which is way more than we did with CCNE. And then, yeah, you get really close to a solution and you get really into the depths of the simulation. At some point, the, the, they were running out of money and they asked me if they can get a loan from the bank. Those things are not in the rules, but people are so stimulated to start thinking out of the box, which is also one of the reasons why we developed the game. Gaming stimulates flexibility and creativity and out-of-the-box thinking, which is greatly desirable during crisis. And Robert, what's the outcome then from the game? Do companies realize we should be going about this a little bit differently, having done it? Exactly. Uh, either the, There are two things. During the game, they get to train their fundamentals. And after the game, we spend a lot of time on the debrief in which we oftentimes, or all of the times, we learn very valuable lessons. For example, 
today, one of the participants came to the insight that, okay, I am an operational worker and today I spent my time fighting the zombies. In my real job, I am often frustrated because I don't get the decisions or the budgets or the means that I need to do my job. But the game made me realize that a part of it is I just don't provide the right information to my management team. And because they don't have this and this and that information, they don't have the full information picture to make that decision. So that was an epiphany. This is the cool thing. We all we also played with the Red Cross, all uh, workers on the front line, and we made some of them part of the strategic management team. And after the exercise, they came to me and they said, Robert, today you made us realize what it is to be in a management team, and we did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> but we realize now how hard it is. So you made Zombie Game uh, for your Belgium market, but but we feel that the Zombie Game is an internationally playable game. Yeah, it is because uh, all the references in the game are really international. We're playing literally from <laughs> Los Angeles to Mars. So <laughs> a, a lot of uh, cities and cultures are involved. Similarly, yeah, the, the need for other types of trainings, uh, we notice that happens everywhere especially with COVID measures being lifted, people want something new, something different. And when we get together again, it has to be worth, worthwhile. So that's, that's why games are so um, uh, come into play. So, uh, Robert, uh, Belgium and the Netherlands are r rather close, although the difference are, are sometimes huge. Do you oversee any difference between handling the crisis in the Netherlands and Belgium? Not really, to be honest. I do, I have to admit, with uh, some pain in my heart, Hoop, that um, yeah, Holland has always been a step further than Belgium when it comes to crisis communication. I think there's no way around it. Uh, when we talk about perception analysis, for example, when we talk about uh, strategic crisis communication advance, here in Belgium, we always look to the Netherlands and then we try to one-up you. <laughs> but I don't really think there's major differences. Yeah. Also in Belgium, I don't notice like a really noticeable trend. There's no particular scenarios or types of crisis that we often get at PM, even though we get a lot of them. Yeah, it's all over the place. Really no trend. So and the fun part, uh, fun thing that we uh, learned from our uh, network meeting mm -hmm. is that in Germany, the recalls are hot. That is a tremendous bunch of work and they're, they're all very sensitive on recalls, on product recalls. And we have had that in the Netherlands for many years, very sensitive on those recalls. But the last years, it is getting less. And that same counts for Belgium as well, huh? Exactly. Um, we, yeah, of course, we had it. We touched on it already uh, with Ferrero. And, um, but of course, that's um, kinder surprises. So it's about children. And uh, people immediately think they are poisoning our children. And that's, um, yeah, that's, of course, a no-go. But I would agree with you, Hoop. Um, at, here in Belgium, also, there's recalls, I think, quite a lot, actually. But people generally don't seem to care like they do in Germany. One of the issues we have in Belgium the past few years, though, is about soil pollution. Uh, in particular, we have PFAS, which is a chemical substance produced by men, so you don't find it in nature. And they use it, for example, in cooking pots, so the, that, um, the, the substance don't stick to the pot. It also is on clothing. 
so that moist or, or water bounces off it. And yeah, we, we have big cases here in Belgium on PFAS pollution. And that's really a touchy, very sensitive topic here. And especially over the past 11 years, I think the norm has been become stricter and stricter and stricter. Therefore, more and more and more sites in Belgium are discovered in which there is a pollution. So yeah, the public outcry at times is a uh, very high. For the Netherlands, we call everything a crisis. We have a crisis in refugees. We have a crisis in energy. We have a crisis in so whatever. How is that in Belgium? Oh yeah, everything is crisis. Yeah, it's crisis. <laughs> yeah, the, the smallest thing. There could be a guy falling off his bike in front of my house, and it's in the paper as a crisis. No, I could of course, but yeah, we, we stick a label of crisis onto anything. And that's something that we fundamentally disagree with. We try to reserve the, the, the term crisis for those specific cases where the survival of the organization, as it is today, is threatened. So, for example, uh, if there is a complaint against one of the people of your management team, most of the time that's not a crisis because, worst case, the guy or the girl gets fired, gets replaced, and you move on. So no, the organization doesn't get threatened. On the other hand, we received a phone call a couple of years back from um, uh, somebody who owns a local production firm for, from a very small company. It was up in flames. And by the end of the evening, it was completely gone. That's a crisis because the survival of the organization is severely threatened at that point. Okay, so you have your criteria, Robert. Yeah, but of course that we at PM, we help out everybody who experiences uncertainty. So it's not that we say like, no, we won't help you because this isn't a crisis to us, of course. But it's just when we're talking about things, not all th uh, things is crisis. Yeah. In Ireland, I think we're pretty much the same. When I heard Sibylla Gietel from Germany on the first episode talking about food, I was quite surprised because I thought, yeah, we have those recalls here. But again, it's not a big deal unless there's something very, very serious. And exactly. so I'd say we're fairly uh, similar to, to both of you, both Belgium and the Netherlands. When a crisis does happen, Robert, and mm -hmm. all the sirens, the emergency go off and you get a, a phone call late at night, how does your team respond to it? Do you have a specific team then for responding to those situations with clients, do you? Yes. So basically, uh, all of the people that work at PM, either for training and consulting or research and development, they can be involved uh, at some point during a crisis activation. Um, so what happens is that we get a phone call. It could be me or my colleague Stein or Senna, uh, whoever who picks up the phone call. And what we do first is we do a little intake with the client where we ask about the specifics of what's happening, as well as the key threats or risks that they see on the short term and on the longer term. So we talk a little bit about um, the consequences or the fallouts. Uh, we end the call by asking, what do you need from us? Because if you don't ask that, they just expect you to be there and to solve it for them. So by asking the question, what do you need from us? You often get a lot of insight in, okay, we really need management support or we want somebody at the doors to handle the press or whatever. So then what we do is, when I have that phone call, I immediately schedule the next meeting. So it's important to immediately at the start establish a rhythm. And between those meetings, what we'll typically do is I will ask for availabilities within the team. 
to see who I can use to build a team with. We're going to start dividing roles. Like you're going to start doing perception analysis. Meanwhile, I'm jumping in the car. I'm going to Brussels, whatever. Yeah, perception analysis, like I mentioned, that's also one of the key things. Um, is this already in the media? Has this story already broken on social media, for example? And then I have the first real meeting, either face-to-face, via Teams, and then we're kind of rolling in a more structured way of dealing with it. So we go back to the CCNE network now, uh, Robert. What were your initial thoughts about entering the network, and did they come out? <laughs> uh, well, my initial thought was uh, good idea, good idea, and glad to be part of it. Uh, honestly, uh, just because first I-, I love everything international. So when it comes to traveling, when it lear- when it comes to learning from each other from different cultures, I, I think it's good to not be limited to your own <laughs> to your own uh, country. So I immediately thought it's good to have a broader network. Also, we have a running joke at PM that we. Um, as part of our growth plans, we have a running plan that we want to have something on Mars by the year 2043. Either it be a flag, a pen, perhaps me or a colleague giving a lecture on the to the Mars colony. I don't care. We want to have something on Mars by 2043. But of course, if we want to reach that, therefore, we first need to conquer the world. And before conquering the world, we first need to conquer Europe. So we're steadily evolving towards the big Mars plan, which is, of course, an an exaggeration, but you get the idea. And right now we're at a point within the growth of PM that we're ready to take the European step. We've been uh, waiting patiently for years because we felt like we were not as strong in Belgium as we wanted to be. But right now we're at a place where we're open to opportunities in Europe and therefore the invite of the CCNE came at the perfect time. And of course, for clients of you, but also your clients, I think it's very valuable as well. Lots of them are multinationals with offices elsewhere in the world, in Europe. And by joining the CCNE, we now have more local antennas, local expertise. So it's only good for the quality of our services, I strongly believe. Yeah, before we started the call, I was telling Hoop, we just won a really nice piece of business. And what was very important to this client was our crisis communication service. And this particular client has a presence in the United Kingdom, Ireland, France, and Spain. So our membership and our relationship with the CCNE was something that was a key factor one, in winning the business, but two, in being able to provide a very, very practical service if they need it with that sort of coverage. So, yeah, there's huge benefits to us and clients. I think it's so important. So, and we just acquired a client for the Netherlands in crisis preparedness, and uh, they were very happy with our announcement of uh, the Belgium the Belgium part of PM. So I have to talk to Robert uh, okay. after this podcast, and then we can perhaps work together for the first time. That would be splendid. So most valuable, guys. That's really cool. So Robert, I believe you have a case study that you want to share with us. Yeah, it is going back to the definition that we talked about of crisis, the definition that we use. Uh, I was thinking about something fits that narrative, as well as you talked earlier about some trends in Belgium. 
uh, about crisis. And what we often see in Belgium these days is that morals and ethics are really a big point of discussion, dividing concepts of the good, what is right and what is not right. So this case was a couple of years back already. So basically what happened, and I can talk about this openly because it was in the media. So I'm not telling anything new here. Of course, any behind the scenes is not material for this podcast. But in Belgium, there's a commission of psychologists. It's like a federation. And the federation is responsible for issuing the title of psychologist to a psychologist. I mean, you can be a psychologist, but you cannot call yourself that unless you're being granted the title. The accreditation. Exactly. So that organization called us because what happened was one psychologist who has a um, is rather locally famous, I would say. She was called by the disciplinary commission of the federation because that one psychologist allegedly she sold sex toys on uh, on her website using her title of psychologist also on her personal instagram account she posted lots of uh, half naked pictures of herself on vacation and there the organization said you cannot do that that's not what a psychologist should do with that title so therefore they gave her a formal warning and she said, if that is the case, if this is not allowed, then I don't even want my title anymore. So she gave up voluntarily her title, but she went to the press, told her story. I cannot even post a picture of myself on social media or I get my title revoked. And she urged everybody else to do the same and to also voluntarily give up the title. Therefore, <laughs> definition of crisis if more and more psychologists gave up their title, yeah, what's the use of the commission then? So that's the, that was the major fear of the organization. Of course, reputation, but also, yeah, why do we exist? So a major uh, existential uh, crisis. So reactions here, and that's what's interesting. That's typically, I think, to Belgium, but perhaps also in your countries, reactions to that news were rather polarized in the sense that one half of the population, they found that a psychologist should not be posting half-naked pictures because they think it discredits the credibility of a psychologist. That's one half. And the other half says like, okay, we're 2020, I don't know, 2020, 2019. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm any others. So that was really dividing. So first order of business for us was for the management of the commission to take a stance. What do you think of this? What is your view here? Because only if you, we have that, we can do any kind of communications. So then we really urged them. We got a point of view and we started really working on internal communications, mainly for the members being the psychologists who are being accredited by that commission. That's the first phase. <laughs> so it's interesting so far. I'm enjoying what where was this is going. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can find it in the news. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So communication goes out, or I think it was late in the evening, we were almost done, or it just was published, I don't know anymore, but we get a call saying like, from that organization saying like, um, yeah, we have some extra context that you should be aware of. Being one of the members of the disciplinary commission is now being accused of sexual misconduct. Here we go. <laughs> there we go, exactly. So 
one psychologist was on the verge of being sanctioned because of a half-naked Instagram picture by a commission in which one of them is now being accused for sexual misconduct. That was not known in the news already. That was not a public story, but we knew that it would eventually come out at some point. So, of course, this yeah, this wreaked havoc uh, on our strategy. <laughs> and therefore, we, uh, yeah, we, we just decided to, to go for it and to, to, to make it public ourselves. We knew there was one journalist who knew about it. And we decided to yeah, do an interview with that journalist and really give the details of everything that, that, we, know to, that we knew about, which is playing open card instead of hiding what was going to come out at some point eventually. But then, uh, yeah, on, on, we knew that on a Saturday morning, it, it would be in the news. And so it happened Saturday morning, the weekend edition of the papers was a big article. Chronology was important here as well, because yeah, we knew, of course, that people would start reading the paper at 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning, whenever they get up. So we made sure as well to send out an internal communications to all psychologists. And that went out the door, I think, 4 a.m. Of course, nobody reads their emails at 4 a.m., I think, on a Saturday. But in the case that they opened the paper, they read something. Then they opened their laptop. There's communications in there. Uh, that was for us very important. And another thing that helped us there, uh, and I realize I'm going very f fast here in this case, and I'm skipping uh, some sidesteps, but um, something that was also very uh, important for us, that uh, and it was a coincidence, of course, it was Saturday and it was very heavy snowfall on that day for the first in a very long time. So what happened was the media was all about the snow. <laughs> Pict pictures of the snow, traffic incidents in the snow, where can we travel to see the snow? And therefore, our story was kind of pushed back. So that was kind of uh, some so luck. We have this learning in the Netherlands that uh, if you are in the situation that you can bring out negative news, mm -hmm. sometimes you are in the position to do that. The best moment to do is that Friday afternoon, just before the start of the weekend. Do you have such a learnings from your cases in Belgium as well? Uh, yeah, most of the time we, I would say that we never waited specifically for a, a moment to push out bad news. However, we noticed that at some points, especially during the COVID pandemic, yeah, there is a crisis happening. We, we start working on it and we immediately make the reflection like, okay, but this afternoon there's a major press conference by the government about the new COVID rules. So if we publish something now, it won't reach the front page. This is what happens a lot, by the way, in the United States on election night. Every company that wants to do recalls, they just talk about it on election night. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Timing. Yeah. That, yeah there's exactly. something about your story, Robert. You're better off driving the bus instead of being down the back of the bus and you've no idea where the bus is going, you know, taking control of that situation. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, once again, how we see crisis communication for us, it's honestly, it's honestly not about the reputation of our clients at that point. It's about, firstly, the people that are affected of this situation, doing right for them. And then what we always see is if you, if you do right for the people that are really affected, that pays dividends for your reputation on the long term. However, if you focus on the long, if you focus on your reputation in the short term, 
yeah, then you really alienate the people that are truly affected. It's really not what you want. Well, going back to the remember the case that you just uh, that you just mentioned, Robert. It was uh, more handling the culture of that organization and the old-fashioned way that they were looking uh, to the situation, were you able to shift that culture with this situation? Yeah, we did because we had a lot of trust from the management of that organization and we noticed at the start that, yeah, what we proposed was new for them and was highly uncomfortable, but they firmly believed in our advice That's one thing. The other thing, what we did immediately, that's actually one of the key learnings we had from that case, is from the start, we involved a legal specialist from that organization in our crisis communications team. Because we realized that this would be a highly legal case. And instead of us doing our thing and then sending everything to legal for validation, we just said, let's get somebody from legal in here. Let's collaborate on the communication together with somebody from legal. Then we don't need validation at the end. And then that way we could work faster and more efficiently. I think with Fusion, Robert, and our approach to a crisis, like one of the things, and we might be a little bit different here, one of the things that we always say to our clients is that you need to be very proactive around all of your communications on a regular basis, making sure that your target audiences know who you are They trust you. They know that you're doing good work mm-hmm. so that when a crisis does happen, you do need the listener or the person who hears about the news to think, no, 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 no. They're a good company. I trust them. Mm-hmm. So if something bad happened, I'm not going to judge them so quickly that I know they've got a good reputation. You know, they're the type of company that you can trust and they've got a a long track record of safety and all of those other things. So we talk about building up a a reputation wall, which is all of that work that you do before a crisis happens. So when something does happen, and invariably something always does, that it's not that you'll be given the benefit of the doubt that people are willing to listen to both sides. Because sometimes I think in that situation, in that case study, you could have that exact same situation in two different organizations and one audience might say oh my god that organization are terrible i know they are i believe the woman Mm -hmm. or in another situation you might say "Mm, yeah no they're a great organization they do things properly you know they've got good governance etc etc so i trust everything that the organization says so would that go against your point a little bit and your approach Well, I, I do agree with you that, um, yeah, put somebody else at the management table, it could have been an entirely different approach. Also, what we realized time and time again as crisis management advisors, a crisis communications advisor, our job is not to s- solve the problem for them. Uh, our problem is to make them see the situation in a different way and hand them additional insights to correctly make an evaluation of the options they have and the consequences that follow. And at some point, it happens sometimes that we provide an advice and they say, no, we don't follow. And then we say, okay, but all right, this is why we gave the advice. Yeah. Option A, these are the consequences. Option, option B, these are the consequences. We recommend option A. 
for this and this and this reason, this is it. And then they can always say, okay, thank you very much. We go for option B. And it happens. And then we oftentimes we say, okay, so I understand. Thank you very much. And then we step take a step back as advisors. Yeah. So yeah. Because what we do is subjective in, in some respects, isn't it? Exactly. And at the end of the day, it's um, yeah, it's the client who who pays the bill, so to speak, and they uh, involve us in, in an assignment, in an engagement. And if they don't agree, then it's up to them to go their own way again. But at least there's something, at least we know that we, in that case, we could enrich their picture on the situation, given different insights. Uh, but I would say in 95% of the cases, the advice gets followed. Yeah, exactly. They pay for your expertise, you know, and you've got a brilliant process and everything. I have one last question for you before we let you go. Do you think there's opportunities in a crisis for the client? Well, yes, because um, Huib once told me, uh, and it's a it's famous quote, never waste a good crisis. So, no, yeah, what happens in crisis is that the organization that is in crisis is under a lot of public scrutiny. People are looking to the organization with a magnifying glass and that's an opportunity to do the good things because if you then do the right things the right way, those things will be magnified as well. So for example, in times of crisis, when I'd say, uh, for example, we did a case where there was um, a company that perhaps had to lay off a lot of their employees, perhaps but it depended on like subsidies and grant money. So lots of uncertainties. At that point, if you communicate with your staff with their best interests at heart, and that at the end they could stay on, that's something, that communication, you being there for them, it's, it's what they will remember for you, from you at that point. However, if you're there totally, yeah, don't do the right things. You fail to communicate. You fail to explain to them what's happening. That uncertainty will follow them as well. So yeah, opportunities in crisis all the time and in crisis communication, like I just talked about, but also in crisis management, because when a crisis happens, you have to improvise, you have to try new things. And sometimes the new things that you try are good <laughs> and are sometimes better than the things you did before. So yeah, sometimes crisis can lead to... Um, a lot of new approaches, insights can be very valuable. Yeah. And sometimes when you're under that huge pressure, that's when you really discover who the real people are behind the business and what they're really like. Pressure creates diamonds. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> Another gem. Did, did Hoop tell you that one? <laughs> no. No. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hoop, thank you so much for being my co-pilot today, my co-host. And and Robert, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your career and the fantastic work that you're doing at PM and Zombie Games. And make sure you send a postcard from Mars when you eventually get there. And before you go to Mars, if you don't mind, I'd like to invite you to co-host the next CCNE podcast with me, if that's okay. Would be a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for, uh, for having me. Cool. Thank you so much. Greg, thank you very much for hosting this. Thank you. Yeah, Hoop and Robert, take it easy.
Thank you for listening to the Crisis Communications Podcast, which has been brought to you by the Crisis Communications Network Europe, an association of European owner-managed PR agencies. For more information, visit our website, www.ccn-europe.com or follow us on LinkedIn. 